Well, welcome to a summary of our study, a rather lengthy study, in what is the normal Christian life. We can start our summary here by concluding that the conditional offer of life under the law was simply overwhelmed by the presence of sin within human nature in the flesh. That's the problem. That's the problem of the man speaking in Romans 7, 7 through 24. He holds the law in high esteem as every good, orthodox, self-respecting Jew did. They held the law in high esteem. The law was so inherent and such a part of their national identity and their personal identity that they would do, wouldn't do anything but hold the law in high esteem. You did not need to be a regenerate person in first century Israel to hold the law in high esteem. However, what is discovered by this man is that the law exposes something in him. So Paul is exonerating the law as well. He's showing that the law is not the problem. The law is just. The law is good. The law is holy. It's just powerless to transform. It's just powerless to bring life. Because the presence of sin in fallen human nature overwhelms the intent of the law. So the law then was given to do just that. To expose and control, not to transform and save. And a good reading of the law, an accurate reading of the law, cannot do anything but where it leads to in this text, and that is despair. But a despair that ought to drive us to Christ, which it does in this text. So this is not the normal Christian life. It cannot be, for many reasons, which we're going to discuss here in just a few moments. So Romans 7, 7 through 24 while it is popular in many Reformation teachings and many Reformation churches and theologians to say that this is the normal Christian struggle with sin on a daily basis and that we have to just learn to roll with it and, and lean into grace. And, uh, that, you know, I understand. I understand. There's an aspect of that. There's enough truth about this groaning we've discovered and this... Uh, carrying this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, that, that makes that argument viable. But it's not an argument that Paul is making in Romans 7, 7 through 24. Yes, there's a Christian struggle with sin, externally, with persecution, rejection, and even martyrdom. And there's a struggle with sin in the remaining flesh in our unredeemed bodies. But it's a, a struggle we win it's a struggle that God has equipped us by His Spirit to overcome and to win, not something that we suffer ongoing, despair-driven defeat, as does the man in Romans 7, 7-24. through 24. So, let me just remind you a little bit that where we got here is by looking at the context when we read Romans 7, 7 through 24, we didn't immediately pick up Luther's writings and say, well, what does Martin Luther say? 
We didn't say, well, let's pick up John Calvin's writings and see what John Calvin says. Nor did we pick up the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the 39 Articles, or the Lutheran Book of Concord. We didn't even pick up our study Bibles, because those too can be slanted sometimes. What we did do is we looked at the text itself within its text. In other words, we examined the subject text within its general context and within its immediate context. And immediately we began to discover that what Romans 7, 7 through 24 is saying and what this man is going through is not what Paul describes as the normal Christian life, either in Romans 6 or Romans 7 or, excuse me, yeah, Romans 7, 1 through 6 or Romans 8 for that matter. For example, Paul says quite clearly in Romans 6, 1, uh, let me turn here, Romans 6, 2, that we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The person in Romans 7, 7 through 24 has certainly not died to sin. In fact, he says in verse 14 of chapter 7 that he is, a, he is unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And yet in Romans 6, Paul, describing the Christian life, speaks of those who have been given a new life. That the body ruled by sin might be done away with. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. So right there we discovered within the biblical context that you can't have it both ways. You can't have it Romans 7, 7 through 14, 7 to 14 saying, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And then have Romans 6, 6 say, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You can't be a slave to sin in one chapter and not a slave to sin in another chapter. So Paul clearly, already we discovered, is not speaking of the regenerate person in Romans 7, 7 through 24. What's more, he says in Romans six fourteen, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. In Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So the context clearly states that Romans 7, 7 through 24, thanks be to God, is not the normal Christian life. And yet, millions, perhaps billions of Christians languish under this traditional teaching primarily from the Lutheran standards and the Presbyterian standards that somehow Romans 7, 7 through 24 and the desperate, despairing struggle under the law with the flesh and with sin is the normal Christian life. The problem with that is that it's so heinous because it robs us of what is the normal Christian life. And that is life in the Spirit. 
life with a continual, ongoing, progressive transformation into the image of Christ in thought, word, and deed. Let me make it very clear. Any teaching that teaches that sin is still your master and that you are still under its control and that you really just can't help it, but you should lean into grace and thank God for the righteousness of Christ, but you really can't help sinning, is not a Christian teaching. I don't care how it comes packaged. I don't care what historic package it comes in or what kind of theological system it comes in or the credentials of the clergy who teach you that. It's simply not biblical. What is biblical is the fact that the normal Christian life is life lived in the Spirit. And Paul mentions nothing, not one word of the Spirit in Romans 7, 7 through 24. That's another reason why this cannot be the experience of a regenerate Christian. So we have been set free here. We have been set free once again from those who would bring us back under the law, back under despair, as the normal Christian life. And we have allowed the text to point us back to Christ in life in the Spirit as the normal Christian life. So that Paul can con conclude in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on to speak of this glorious advocacy that God has set up with us, for us, through us, to us, in his Son. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ, Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I would suggest it's blasphemy. Not just a matter of opinion, not just a matter of a difference of opinion or different view, to say that Romans 7, 7-24 through 24 is the normal Christian life. It's blasphemous. In the context of Romans 6, 7, and 8, taken as a unit, it's, it's not only absurd, it's not only irrational, incongruent, it's blasphemous when you see where God has brought for us, what God has bought for us in His Son, the redemption that is ours in His Son, and the power to live it out in the Spirit. Now, let me just read to you a few other statements by a few good, sober-minded, evangelical theologians as to their conclusions on this text as well. This is part of the process that we do when we do our Bible study. We isolate our text. We read our text thoroughly. We do some observation on it so we know what's being said there. And while we don't necessarily always understand at that point what the text is saying, we hear what it's saying. And then we move to the immediate context. 
the verses immediately above and below it. And then we move to the more general context, the chapters before it and after it. And then we look for the history and the reason the letter was written in the first place. By the time we get to that point, simply in our contextual study, we can determine what our subject text is saying. And if you just learn to do that, my friends, you will save yourself a lot of grief, and you will spare yourself and learn to discern from a lot of bad teaching. You know, there's heresy and false teaching, and then there's just misguided teaching. And a lot of pastors these days, especially if they're from more traditional theological systems, are just offering you a lot of bad teaching. Not all bad teaching. I'm not saying that all Lutheran pastors are teaching everything bad all the time. That's not it. But the package it comes in is bad. And I dare say that if you're a Presbyterian with your uh, covenant of grace and your covenant children and infant baptism, that you're, you're having to really stretch to support that. You can't support that biblically. And so the real challenge here, underlying everything that I've said in this series, is whether or not we're going to subscribe to religious tradition or whether we're going to cling to the authority and the integrity of the text of Scripture. That's the challenge. And I believe that most Reformation traditions, those that came over from Europe and are now pretty well entrenched in the United States, North America, are those traditions which rely on you to not want to look at the text. I mean, for 1,500 years, the clergy has depended upon you not wanting to read the text. The clergy oftentimes depends upon you being biblically illiterate. And throughout church history, any time people have taken up a Bible, if they could find one, when they could find one, or any portion thereof, and began to study it and read it, it sparked a revival. It sparked a reform movement. It sparked change. And then people get passive, and they begin to rely too much on their clergy. They begin to rely too much on the liturgy. They begin to rely too much on the notion that somehow this clergy-laity divide means that there's things about the gospel that you simply just can't understand. And so why try? Leave it up to the professionals. Leave it up to those who really know what's best. And don't bother reading the text for yourself. Well, my friends, that is a prescription. That is a recipe for disaster, spiritually. And not only spiritually, but remember, our mental and relational health depends on our spiritual health. And so, there's a lot of mental illness, and there's a lot of chaos and pain in Christian families that could be resolved if people, Christians, were spiritually healthy. And to be spiritually healthy means you have to do more than just rely upon a weekly church service led by clergy who have every intention of usurping the ministry instead of equipping you for the ministry, who have a vested interest, and sometimes literally a financial vested interest, in keeping you spiritually immature instead of spiritually mature people who know the Word of God for themselves. So, I've been there. I've been around the block now since 1975. I, I've, 
I've been in a lot of churches. I've pastored three churches. I understand what, what's happening. I, I, I get it. I, I know what's going on around me. I have friends who are still in the pastorate. And, um, and I, I understand that these are just the dynamics that go on. But my concern is for you. My concern is that you attain the spiritual maturity and thus the mental and relational health that God wants for you. He wants you to walk in shalom and in peace, which is, of course, another word for shalom. He wants you to walk in the well-being that he intends for his people. And we can't do that through compromise. We can't do that through allowing uh, credentialed men to tell us what the scripture says. We have to find it for ourselves. But nonetheless, once we've done our own work, once we've come to our conclusions, and we can see, because scripture does interpret scripture, once we've done our own work, then we're able to start turning to some commentaries or some study Bibles or some uh, means by which we can affirm, or at least maybe perhaps even get a contrast to what we've concluded. So it's okay now at this point in our study to turn to good, solid, uh, sober-minded, biblical theologians who don't have a tradition to sell us, who aren't trying to promote some kind of historic, systematic theology. Instead, they, they too are men who want to know what the text says. And so one of them is Craig Keener and his commentary on Romans. He says here, quote, about Romans 7, 7 through 24, Ideally, Paul's depiction cannot refer to a believer, least of all, to one who embraces Paul's theology of new life in Christ. That's not to claim that no believer would ever share any elements of the description, but any believer who did so would be thinking in a manner incompatible with Paul's teaching on the law. For Paul, anyone struggling to be made righteous by following God's standard, rather than relying on God's transforming gift of righteousness, might experience a sort of tension between knowing right and being right described here. Paul's description here, however, is hyperbolic. Complete inability to do right and involuntary compulsion to do wrong sounds like possession rather than moral frustration. Simply cannot be referring to the believer. Let me share with you now also one of my favorite teachers and professors, Gordon Fee, and his thoughts, I want to keep this brief, but effective for you. He speaks to how that Romans 7, 7 through 24 simply cannot be the Christian experience. He says, by the time you get through Romans 7, enter Christ in the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8 is God's response to the anguished cry of 7.24. We know what that cry was, right? That cry he's speaking to, of course, is, is, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from the body of this death? Not only 
says Fee, not only is there no condemnation in Christ, that is, the judgment we also richly deserve has been put in our past through the death of Christ, but we now live by a new law, that of the spirit of life. What the law was unable to do, Christ has now done for us positionally, and the spirit fulfills in us experientially as we walk in the spirit. That's the key. The Christian life, the normal Christian life, is not a life under law, but a life walked in the Spirit. And then he gives three quick and brief points here. He says, number one, what Paul describes throughout is what it was like to live under the law. And whatever else is true of the Christian Paul, he did not consider himself to be under law. What he describes from his now Christian perspective is what it was like to live under law before Christ and the Spirit. The use of I in the present tense of the verbs only heightened the intensity of his fe uh, feelings toward the utter helplessness of the law to do anything about the real problem of sin. Point two. Fee says this. The person here described never wins. Being under the helpless law in the face of a more powerful flesh and sin means to be sold as a slave under sin and thus incapable of doing the good thing the law demands. Such a description is absolutely incompatible with Paul's view of life in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And then number three, as I mentioned a few moments ago, Fee agrees there is not a single mention of the Spirit in the entire passage, Romans 7, 7 through 25. The Spirit was last mentioned in verse 6 as the key to our new life in Christ, who has brought our relationship with the law and the flesh to an end. Christ and the Spirit are then picked up again in 8, 1 through 2, as the divine response to the anguished cry of the person struggling with sin, but with the helpless law standing by, pointing out the sinfulness of our sin, unable to do anything about it. Thus, the only questions Paul himself raises in this entire passage have to do with Torah, the first five books of the Bible, whether it is good or evil, and once this is affirmed as good, how this good thing is still implicated in our death. Life under Torah alone is under scrutiny. So we're seeing here that the theologians, who are much better men than I am, <laughs> uh, much more uh, longer in Christ, much more studied than I am, are agreeing with the text. They're, we're, not, we're not imposing anything on the text here. Remember, our goal was to read out of the text. Let the text speak for itself. And not to impose anything on it. Not to come with our presupposed tradition and impose it and make the text say something. So you can imagine 
my grimace. You can imagine, and I hope you do too from now on. Anytime you hear somebody say, well, Romans 7, 7 through 24 is describing the normal Christian life. Or somebody to say, you know, I really struggle with sin, but I'm consoled by the fact that Paul struggled too. Remember what he said in Romans 7. That you'll be able to gently, kindly inform that person that that's not at all what Paul was speaking of. And that they too do not have to be obligated to sin. They're not obligated to continuing that defeating struggle. Well, finally, let me read one more quote here from uh, Douglas Moo, another very good, sober-minded, and uh, trustworthy theologian. And his commentary to the Romans, just briefly, he says this, he refers to the fact that Romans 7, 7 through 24 is a conflict that he, Paul, experienced as a Jew under the Mosaic Law. To what extent Paul was conscious of this conflict and his failure, failure at that time of that conflict is difficult to ascertain. The fact that Paul is describing the experience of the Jew under the Mosaic Law does not mean, of course, that the conflict described here is peculiar to the Jew. All non-Christians, now that's a very good point. You could find that Romans 7, 7 through 24 does have great meaning for any unregenerate churchgoer. For example, any uh, Roman Catholic who's struggling to find their peace of mind in Christ through that system, will never find peace of mind. They'll only find continuous frustration and despair. All non-Christians are in a similar situation, Moo says. And many, probably most, Christians can find in this description of nagging failure to do what is good an all-too-accurate reflection of their own experience. But, without denying the similarity, I must say again that the conflict Paul describes here is indicative of a slavery to the power of sin as a way of life. That is not typical or even possible for the Christian. End quote. That, I think, is the key point that I want to make in this series, or one of the key points I want to make in this series. So I'm going to read that last line again. Douglas Moose says this, I must say again that the conflict describes, Paul describes here is indicative of a slavery to the power of sin as a way of life that is not typical or even possible for the Christian. End quote. Anybody who knows me knows that I am not a triumphalist. I am not one of those happy, clappy, victory chapel kind of Christians who think that we all should walk around being utterly blessed all the time and refusing to acknowledge the realities of our life. I remember speaking to a man one time and I asked him how he was doing. I gave him a sincere inquiry. He was, uh, it was at an um, Alcoholics Anonymous hall that I asked him this, so it should give you an idea how he was, how things were really going for him. 
And I remember he looked at me and I knew he was a Christian. And he looked at me and he got a big smile on his face and said, Oh, Rick, I am so blessed. I am blessed, blessed, blessed. Well, it was a little nauseating, frankly, because I knew it wasn't true for him. But there is a mindset. There is a mindset, especially in the charismatic world, that you, if you're not walking in absolute victory all the time and you're able to shout glory all the time, all the while, that somehow you're less than a Christian. That's just the other extreme. And then you have those in more of the Reformed tradition who just think it's really pious or even a sign of spiritual maturity to walk around with rounded shoulders in defeat, struggling under the law, and uh, leaning into the, the righteousness of Christ because, after all, they are such vile sinners. They're just a pile of dung with a white blanket of snow over the top of them, like which represents the righteousness of Christ. But inside, they're still vile worms of sinners. One of the things I've learned about the works of the flesh is that it dwells within extremes. You get those two extremes going, you're not likely talking to a Christian. You're talking to somebody who's caught up in some kind of religiosity. The good news that we have here is what I've already read you in Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you can take Romans 6, 7 and 8. Read it thoroughly, read it prayerfully, and take careful note and read it with the intent of actually hearing what it says. I think you will find a new path of transformation in which God has always intended for you to have, which is your spiritual birthright, a spiritual birthright of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Christian life is life lived in the Spirit. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 6, he reminds us that the mind governed by the flesh is death. That's the mind of the unbeliever. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. That's your spiritual birthright. New life and peace. Well, thanks for sticking with me through this uh, long series on the normal Christian life. I hope it's been helpful to you. You're welcome to send me questions or comments uh, to EncounterRecovery at gmail.com. EncounterRecovery at gmail.com. If you're writing to argue or call me names or to pick a fight, (laughs) don't bother. (laughs) I won't probably even finish reading your email before I delete it. So, But if you do have questions... If you're interested in learning more and you might want to know what book you can read or whether how we got through this uh, series as we did and some pointers on doing your own effective Bible study, please do send me an email. Let me know what your questions are. I'll be careful to get back to you as quickly as possible. I can't always do it immediately, but I, I will try to get back to you within a reasonable period of time. Well, may the Lord bless you and strengthen you. May you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.